It is Locked on Jazz for the 19th of February. All-Star break continues. The Ringer shows some respect to Rudy. Two players I'm curious to see. A thank you and a special guest. It's all coming up on today's edition of Locked on Jazz. Pow! How are you? I'm David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, Jazz NBA insider. This is Locked on Jazz, your daily podcast on the Utah Jazz. You can get it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or when you get in your car, tell your smart device to play podcast Locked on Jazz. All right, special show today with the All-Star break. I thought it was a good time to visit with Mike Snar. Who's Mike Snar, you ask? Well, he is a 28-year veteran in the jazz sponsorship and marketing departments. He wrote a book called Long Shots and Layups, and he'll join us for segments two and three today uh, on the program. So we're excited to have him aboard. In the meantime, we'll run through a few of the topics as we get ready. The team, I think, gets back together tomorrow, Wednesday, to practice. Then Thursday practice, we fly to Oklahoma City and play the Thunder on Friday, home Saturday for a game against the Mavericks. Luka Doncic coming to town. Tickets are available uh, for that at utahjazz.com. Let me uh, first give out a little congratulations to our TV crew. They got a bunch of great pub um, this last week uh, from, I think, Sports Business Journal for being uh, the number two rated NBA average rating, third overall and average rating change this year. Uh, congratulations. Uh, you know, I think uh, I want to give, you know, Craig, Thurl, Matt, Kristen are the upfronts to incredible um, jobs on that, Alema and the crew. But I also think, you know, the behind-the-scenes crew, Scott Rogers, I'm going to just – is their graphics guy does incredible work. Travis Henderson and as Jeremy Brunner have won numerous Emmys for their work on these broadcasts. Jerry Carter's been a longtime camera person. Brianna uh, Carr or maybe Barker now I can't remember which is married and which is not. Um, does the product is the producer for the pregame show? Obviously, Alema does great work there as well. So, um, really, really cool um, stuff from them. Universally, congratulations, and they just do great work. It's just a special treat to have it and in our crew. Um, it's fun to watch them work every day. So I wanted to give them a shout-out uh, to start the program today. Uh, I thought there was an interesting piece. Today's show, by the way, is brought to you by the uh, Slow the Flow as well as Murdoch Hyundai. So The Ringer wrote an interesting little NBA piece over the weekend, and on the best players, 25 best players in the first 60 games of the season. And this to me was kind of like, okay, we got really good basketball people here. Where does Rudy show? So Kyle Lowry was 25th. Clay Thompson was 24th. Nikola Vukovic was 23rd. Chris Middleton was 22nd. Luka Doncic was 21st. Russell was 20th. Bradley Beal was 19th. And all of a sudden I'm like, there's no way. There's no way they left out Rudy. Carl Anthony Towns is 18th. Ben Simmons is 17th. Drew Holiday's 16th. And I... Wait a second here. What? Kemba Walker's 15th. You got to be kidding me. Rudy Gobert came in at 14th. It's pretty, pretty high level. I mean, obviously... We believe in Rudy as much as anyone. But I think 
you know, this is a pretty good tribute. I mean, the guys ahead of him are Blake Griffin, Dame Lillard, Kyrie Irving, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Kawhi Leonard, Nikola Jokic, Joel Embiid, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Paul George, James Harden, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Pretty hard to ask for any more respect than what the ringer gave Rudy Gobert here. Uh, I think this is right. You could make, and I think it's probably actually, I mean, it's really right. Blake's been great this year. I could probably try to make an argument that he should be ahead of some of these guys, but it's a, it's a discussion, and it would be a 51-49 discussion. You know, Dame's 26 points or Rudy's defense? Kyrie's 24 points or Rudy's defense? Both Dame and Kyrie can do some things in a tight game, in a close game that Rudy cannot. Does that's one possession of 200? Does it matter? Is that what should override your decision? It's a good debate. I don't know the answer, but I thought that was pretty high level uh, respect right there. Two players I'm very curious to see as we kind of move into this next portion of the season. One of them is Joe Ingles. And for three probably primary reasons. One, uh, Joe and Renee announced um, as they opened up training camp, or as they opened up, sorry, as they opened up uh, All-Star break, that one of their kids is autistic. Uh, You know, first off, incredible support to them. Uh, And I can only, you know, when Joe signed here and announced he was going to uh, stay here and be involved in the community, I think this might be their calling card. They, they're very committed to having an impact on people's lives in the community. Salt Lake City has a very high autism rate. Uh, they're now involved in that. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't become one of the forefront families on this. Obviously, Qualtrics has done amazing work in this regard also. Um, so I, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, our thoughts are with them. It's a battle, uh, and I think it's going to be their calling, and I think Joe and Renee will have an incredible impact on our our culture and our society with that. With that said, I don't think that's something that just happened yesterday. Like that's These guys are human. Joe's real. So I'm guessing that that had some sort of, you know, maybe there's some freedom here. The other thing on Joe is if you look at his career, he's had two months stints often where he's a little off. In 15-16, it lasted a little longer. In 16-17, it lasted a little shorter. Even last year, if you look at his numbers, he's a little off from game 21 to 40. This year, he was off from game 31 to 50. He was back. He shot 44% in the final six games from three. I suspect Joe shot 39-39-37 in the first three 30 games of the season in 10-game blocks. Sorry, I didn't say that very well. In 10-game blocks, 39-39-37. That's fine. Like, Joe, 44% would be ideal, but Joe, 44% probably is a little higher than we can anticipate. And then games 31 through 40, he shot 33%. In game 41 through 50, he shot 31% from three. I suspect that number's going up. And when you look at what Joe's doing, he is his workload is for a guy over 30 is as high as about any player in the league. Players 30 or older averaging 30 minutes per game over the last two seasons. There's only about 10 of them. Joe has played the most minutes of any of those of that group. The other one is 
We love the Joe Ingles with Derek Favors and Rudy Gobert on the floor. Uh, Joe and Derek combination. That hurts Joe's shooting. Joe has played 301 minutes without Donovan, without Ricky, without Neto. So basically is the point guard. He shoots 38% from the field and 25% from three in those circumstances. As Dante gets healthy, and maybe Dante takes a little larger that role, I think it allows Joe to open some things up. So I suspect that we may have a better second half from Joe. We'll dig, we'll dig into a little bit more on that uh, this week. And the other one is Kyle Korver, and only for this reason. I mean, he's so incredible. It, Kyle Korver's been living a whirlwind. Like, these guys are human. This is a little bit of my point on this. So he gets traded. He gets moved out here. His wife comes halfway through with his kids. They're all trying to get situated. They, they just went to Santa Barbara, their favorite place on the planet, and may have just been able to settle. Reset. Get kind of everything back in line and come back. And now we don't play a lot. Right? I mean, Kyle is still as incredible as he is. 37 years old, turning 38 years old here in a month. And he has not had a double digit. In the final four games, he didn't have two threes. He's only had two threes in one of the final six games. Like, I think there's a little level here where some time off and a reset would help him. His final six games was 29% from three. And I think that'll be really interesting. All right, Mike Snar is going to join us here in a second to give us his thoughts. 28 years marking the book is long shots and layups. Some interesting insight on Larry and Gail and Hot Rod. What it was like in the organization, the evolution of the organization. Some insight that not anybody else can give us. I do want to, I had this experience yesterday. So often we sit around and I, I complain about Twitter and all those kind of things. I want to do the opposite. I want to take a second and thank. Uh, I, was on, I went to San Diego yesterday for the day and on the flight back, I some guy stopped me as I was waiting for my daughter to um, come out of the bathroom and just said, hey, my brother, I texted my brother, you were on the, we were on the plane, and he wanted to just let you know that in just these really nice set of compliments that basically, you know, his jazz fandom's been better, which is the ultimate goal. And I don't, you know, we don't need to run through what they were, but they were really nice. And I just want to say thanks. Like, I loved it. Like, it was great. I, You know, if I'm going to sit around here every now and then and complain about jazz Twitter and the negative stuff and da-da-da, like... I really appreciate it. when you take the moment to say hi and and say thanks. I, I, I really that's truly fabulous. So, um, thank you so much for doing so, and saying hi and sharing that with me. It made my day, and uh, appreciate you. Uh, all right, Mike Snar coming up on Locked On Jazz. But first, today's show is brought to you by Murdoch Hyundai. I was texting with Blake because the Genesis Open, which is a Hyundai, that's the high end. Uh, company of Hyundai. Uh, the other day, I asked him if I could be a Sherpa next year to go watch the Genesis Open, but I, I don't, maybe if I butter him up enough, maybe if I mention it every day on my, uh, never mind. All right, so Murdoch Hyundai's got a bunch of great things going on. The love month of February is still taking place. You can drive home a 2019 Elantra for just 13990 and the North American Utility Vehicle of the Year, the Hyundai Kona. I told you about the Kona. I was one. Of, I got to drive it when it first came out. Zippy, fast, fun, kind of like the Subaru uh, Crosstrack. Two nine, two fifty nine a month. This all comes with America's best ten year warranty, hundred thousand mile powertrain, and Hyundai Assurance. MurdochHyundai.com. If you're shopping for a car, just do this for me. Check in 
to Hyundai, see what you can do. And remember, if you buy from Murdoch, you get the no regrets policy, which is a five-day exchange policy, car washes for life. It's all at Murdoch Hyundai in Linden, Logan, and Murray. You got to come see us. Today's show is also brought to you by our friends at Slow the Flow. You guys are not partaking in my fun little Slow the Flow campaign of all the different ways you're saving water. No one's emailing me all their different ways in which they're saving water. I like the Google. My best one I've got is the Google thing telling me my Google Home speaker keeping a map uh, timer up for me. Uh, In the past 20 years, Utah's weather has been obviously a streaky shooter. Some years it's splash, probably this one. Others it's very little, but that streaky shooter gets us to some serious water worry. So even in the winter, there's a lot you can do. Slowtheflow.org has plenty you can do to conserve water in the home, like shortening your shower time. The numbers don't lie. If you shower just one minute less every day, you save 1,875 gallons of water a year. I, here's a thought. We have about 14,000 listeners to this show on a given day, maybe sometimes less, but let's go with it because it makes it for better math. If each of us showered... For one more minute less every day, we as a combined group could save 26 million gallons of water. Let's do it. Locked on jazz saving water. 2.5 gallons every minute you shower if you get even an ultra low flow shower head. You're a big fan of Utah. I am. We all are. Head to slowtheflow.org. Slow the flow. Save H2O. We're joined by old friend Mike Snar, who wrote the book Long Shots and Layups. Uh, luckily, Mike didn't reveal any things about a really obnoxious 22 to 25-year-old talk show host that he had to deal with for a long time in there, um, which I, I, I appreciate that, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for not revealing hey, any ugly warts there. You, you were the best, and you still are the best, so it was... Uh... It was always a pleasure, you were, and you were sensitive to uh, the business side of things as well as the sports side. So that doesn't always happen. Yeah, I think you're being kind, but we'll move. We'll move forward. Uh, it's an interesting book. So Mike spent uh, 28 years selling sponsorships and working in sponsorships and marketing uh, with the Jazz, and through the heyday of of the Utah Jazz, and has kind of written a book intertwining his development, uh, the sales and sponsorship development of the NBA with uh, the rise of the Utah Jazz. And so let me just start. You know, you retired. What made you decide to write it? You know, uh, it, good question. I, I retired in 2015, and uh, I had never really kept any notes or a journal or anything about the, the team or experiences. And I thought it might be nice to put down some notes for my kids and just sort of a, um, a memoir of what I did. And then as I started to to do that, things just started to come together, and I, I thought about uh, the team side and all the fun things that happened, all the crazy experiences, uh, as you know, that you saw, that I saw, that or that people told me about, and so I just started to write chronologically a little bit from, from the start, and I, I titled chapters based on... Uh, uh, you know the the flow of things. So the you know from beginnings to draft day, to learning to play, to rookie moves, things like that. And as I did that, I thought about uh, some of the things that happened with the team as that as as the team progressed. And so it just started to flow from that. And pretty soon I had a book, and I sent it to to a couple people, and they said, you know, you need to publish this. And um, nobody's ever written a history about the team, and and so. Um, 
that that uh, got me going. So I don't know anything about book writing, but do you find yourself with a thing you hope that we have as a takeaway? Uh, do you want us to learn something particular as it's done? What's your feeling on someone who takes the time to read it, what you hope they walk away with? From from my book? or From your book, yeah. Or, oh, yeah. Well, I think there are a couple of themes uh, that, I, that I didn't really think about a lot, but the sort of emerges I wrote. <clears throat> One of them is uh, effort beats talent. Uh, I, as I... As I as I read and and re- reminisced, I realized that um, really the, the best players in the NBA certainly have gifts and talent, but the effort they made and the effort that people in the front office made overcame and and, and was was more important than the, than the talent. And I w- I was at an NBA uh, seminar once, and I didn't really put this in the book, but I attended a, an NBA, NBA league meetings and. Uh, one of the meetings had a panel, and the, the panel included uh, uh, a lot of greats, including Bill Russell and uh, Julius Irving and Larry Bird and uh, Isaiah Thomas was there and, and some other players. And they and somebody asked the question, "What what made your career be what it was?" And every one of them said the same thing: it was the it was the extra effort I made to become good. And I think that. Uh, I think that is something I'd, I'd love to have people take away from the book is that, you know, we, we can accomplish a lot, but it all really comes down to effort. The other theme is sort of uh, linked to it, and that is don't quit. You know, just uh, uh, stay with it. Uh, stay together. Uh, you know, don't let family uh, problems or career problems keep you from accomplishing your goals. And <clears throat> there are a couple of years that uh, – if you think about the, the playoff, the run that the Jazz had in the playoffs, there's there's two years that they um, you, you could have blown up the team. You know, 1988 they played the the Lakers and went seven games in the second round. The next year uh, they lost three. Uh, Golden State swept them in the, the very next year, and so everybody we all had these high hopes. Of, man, we're going to go to the next level. And instead, we went out in the first round. That would have been one time you could have said, let's blow the team up and start over or let's make some trades. But they didn't. And it happened again in uh, 93 because in 92, they won, I think it was 55 games. And uh, they went to the to, to the Western Conference Finals, I think, with Port, Portland, and they lost them. The next year, Seattle beat them in the first round, and they only won two games in the first round. So... Again, you could have said, "Wow, we, we, you know, we're not together. Let's let's figure this out. Let's fire the coach, or let's you know, trade some players." And they didn't. And you know, three years later, they're they're on their way to the finals. So I, those are two things, two messages that I that I hope come through in the book. Talking with Mike Snar, the book is "Long Shots and Layups," uh, breaking down his many many years in the NBA. What's wild when I read this, Mike, and I felt this for a while as we kind of emerge now as the Jazz in this next generation with Dennis Lindsay and Quinn Snyder and Donovan and Rudy, is you know if you were if you're under forty years old, you were un- prob- you know you really may not remember Stockton Malone at all. You know, That's right. You know it's kind of a it's kind of a crazy thing how and if you do remember Stockton Malone, you actually just remember what you're talking what with the NBA finals, but you don't remember 
the 10 to 12 years beforehand in which there were all the struggles and things were wrong and there were bad losses and there were terrible playoff series and things of that sort. So I think it's an interesting kind of perspective in that regard. Uh, I also think what is unfortunate is just the passage of time is that some of these great personalities and people are, you know, they're now mythology. It's almost a myth a little bit because we don't have that many people interacting with them. So let's start with the most important of all of them. What would you tell us about Larry and, and Larry H. Miller? Uh, fascinating guy. Extremely loyal uh, to his employees. Uh, yes, a little bit passionate and sometimes a little fiery. And uh, emotional tended to fly off the handle a little bit. Like a lot of you know entrepreneurs or uh, creative geniuses uh, might do. But he was extremely loyal and uh, very level-headed at the end of the day, and uh, just uh, you never looked over your shoulder or, or worried about what would happen. If you did your job and you worked hard, Larry knew that, and uh, he supported people. So um, just, um, it, you know, it was, he, he was sort of um, hands-off with us a little bit. You know, I, I was... Uh, um, uh, Surprised about that. He, he did deal with players, as you know. He, he worked with um, Carl and John and uh, even Andre Karolinko. I think he did his contract, too. <clears throat> so, but, he, but he was sort of like, let us, let us run. But there's a couple of things that, uh, a quick story, that uh, just kind of shows you the, the, uh, the, the, the genius of Larry Miller. <clears throat> I was in a meeting once with uh, the sports guys and all the uh, car dealerships. And uh, right in the middle of the meeting, he stopped and he turned to Clark Whitworth, who, who, who is now the president uh, of, of the organization, and said, hey, Clark, how long does it take us to decide if we're going to buy a particular dealership? And Clark uh, looked at him without hesitating and said, about 30 minutes. So he just realized how deep uh, the knowledge ran uh, for Larry and for Clark and the people around him. I mean, they were, they were, they really had that figured out. <clears throat> Another time he stopped right in the middle of a discussion, uh, at a retreat. And he said, it's coming. This is about 2007. I just want you to know it's coming. A recession is coming and it's going to hit us hard. I don't know exactly when it's going to come, but it's going to come and you'll be, all you dealerships will be standing there with your inventory and it, it will be tough. You'll have to let people go. You'll have to roll up the red carpet. Um, but I want you to know that we'll be fine because we own our real estate. We own our dealerships. We're not going anywhere. If worse comes to worse, we'll be the last man standing. Again, that was just a, uh, sort of a testament to who Larry was and um, the fact that he was, he was a genius. I remember, you know, that was in the that during that period, uh, right before he passed, where I did the hour with him every Thursday. Well, sometimes two hours uh, yes, on the talk yep. show because we'd schedule an hour and then he'd still have an hour for things he wanted to talk yeah. about. And uh, I remember that period during the recession. One of those comments, you know, he had a tendency in that show to make comments that we then all worried about what was going to happen after he said it. But he was the boss, so it was probably okay. Uh, but I remember him saying, "Well, maybe the employees will appreciate their jobs again." And it was interesting how he yes. he felt as though the economy had gotten so good that there had been a lack of 
you know, respect to the work that the that the employees had along the way as well. Uh, Mike Snar Mike is with us. He's the author of, of Long Shots and Layups. Uh, we'll touch on the other half of Larry, who we've seen now. We'll talk about Hot Rod. Uh, we've mentioned some of the struggles, but we'll go back to them from what it was like for an organization and touch on some of those things. And the evolution of a $20,000 marketing deal to a $2 million uh, sales deal uh, in his career. It's all more coming up here on Locked on Jazz with Mike Snar. So, Mike, one thing that's become abundantly clear to us is that Gail is really wonderful, Gail Miller, and, and somewhat of a genius in her own right, and just this incredibly um, thoughtful, bright, hard-nosed, comforting, kind of the whole, compassing all of it. It's become abundantly clear in the last decade. Did Were you aware of it then? Uh, I think you sensed it. I think you sensed it. Uh, there were little indications uh, of, of uh, Gail's hand in things. She kept um, sort of a backseat approach, but um, particularly uh, towards the time when Larry was not feeling well and starting to become more ill, uh, she took more of a, a, fro- a forefront position. And uh, it wasn't very long after he passed that she spoke to the, again, to the senior management group and in a very heartfelt uh, talk said that, uh, uh, listen, we need you all to take care of yourselves. And we need, if you, if you smoke, stop smoking. If you drink, stop drinking. If you um, are, are not attentive at work, get, a t- get, get on the job. You know, she was, and, and you could sort of feel that, uh, you know, first of all, she really missed Larry. And, but, and that she was warning us, hey, you know, if you don't take care of yourself, not you know, good things don't happen, and and so uh, that's the first time I th- I thought, wow, you know, she has she's been in the back room, really kind of helping orchestrate things with Larry. Uh, that is so abundantly. Now you actually go back and retrospectively kind of wonder, uh, not to minimize Larry's genius, but how much of this was just pure fifty-fifty genius? Because it's so abundantly yeah. clear what she what she's able to do now. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, you can see that uh, certainly Larry was a genius, but but so is Gail. Uh, Hot Rod Hunley, you dealt with him an awful lot because you're dealing with sponsorships. Uh, Hots was probably more in tune to just call a game and and do that than necessarily go shake hands and do all those. Unless unless you're buying him a free meal, and then I bet you could get him out there. Um, <laughs> tell us, uh, it's another one that I feel. You know, I feel it's kind of my obligation to keep Hots alive in people's minds. But, you know, I'm at 10 years now, so it's been a decade since since Hots has, um, since Hots has called a game for, for Jazz fans a little more. Give us your memories of Hots and, and, and what he was like to work with. Well, David, you're probably closer to him than anybody, but uh, I, really, I really came to like Hot Rod. And, and, uh, and, of course, if you wanted to take Hot Rod to lunch, he was always available. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I learned a little bit about his childhood and his growing up years before he, before he became a, a superstar, a sensation in college. And, and uh, you know, he had a, a very difficult uh, time, kind of like Larry Miller did in a way, you know, raised by an aunt and an uncle. Um, he, he once said that my favorite time of year was Christmas because I knew someone in the neighborhood would, would get a new basketball. Um, so, uh, I think he, I think he had some challenges that, that sort of was reflective in his personality in later years. But, um, 
he was great with clients and I, I, you know, I would take him occasionally. We'd play golf with a client and he'd, he'd come and do that or he'd speak to a client. And, um, he had some, uh, some, some pretty funny stories that he sort of low keyed. And, uh, uh, probably my favorite story is, uh, when he, uh, he talked about, uh, I think it was about 68 or 67, somewhere in there were in the Lakers and the, and uh, the Celtics played in the NBA Finals, and he said we played seven games and lost. And um, of course, you, you know, it was back and forth, back and forth on the on a. They weren't they were commercial jets. They they flew. Uh, but he said one of the players at the uh, on the way back to L.A. after we'd lost the seventh game in Boston uh, on a Sunday night just seemed happy and was seemed all right about things. And he, and somebody, uh, he, he said something about, Hey guys, don't be so down. We'll, we'll get them on Tuesday. Uh, here, here's a guy playing in the NBA finals. that didn't even know, uh, which game they were playing. You know, he was just there having a good time. And, um, you wonder if that's a, just an urban legend, but I, I, I think, I think it probably happened. And, and that's, that's the kind of stuff that a hot rod would share. But, uh, it just, you know, uh, the other thing that, about Harrod I think was great was how quickly the fans embraced him. Uh, I'm not sure he was excited to come here, but when he came, he embraced the city, got involved immediately, and the fans loved him. Uh, just they, they just loved him. So, great guy. Uh, you know, I think that, I don't, you know, even Dave Fredman, who was one of the originals still with the Jazz after a little snippet with Denver. Right. I don't think anyone was excited to come if we're really honest about it. No one knew No one knew what they were getting into, nor did anyone know whether or not the franchise could sustain it. You talked a little bit about that. By the time you joined the franchise, things were rolling a little bit. So yeah. before we get to that period where it's rolling, you did mention those losses were – you know, the NBA is in a funny period of time. The NBA has is on the Michael rise. The Jazz are rising with it. But we keep having these little kind of, I don't know, you know, missteps along the way. What was, what was that like? I think, you know, as we, I guess I'm comparing it to now where everyone thinks there's just going to be this straight trajectory, right, of, of right. rise up to the top. And it's certainly not going to be like that. Um because it's just not how it works. What was that like in that right. period of time where things, you know, there were those kind of blips in the road and, and how much did people at times lose faith, you know, when the Jazz, you know, suddenly lost that 92-93 uh, series in the first round or that 89-90 series in the first round? You know, uh, that whole process was kind of interesting because I just remember thinking when, when the Jazz made an overture for me to come and work there, Telling my wife, uh, I don't want to work for any organization where my whole existence depends on how well uh, my whole existence depends on how well a 22-year-old kid can shoot a jump shot. I just, you know, that's that's not business, is it? And uh, so I went there with that kind of mindset, and we, um, but I think we matured in the front office as uh, along with the team. I think somehow. With John and Carl and, and some of the other players, Terrell and Mark Eaton and all those, that whole group, I think there was some hope. And I think so, even though we had a couple of big setbacks, I think there was still hope.
So in the midst of that hope, you end up going from your first ever deal being a $20,000 deal that was done by half trade with a cellular company when before we knew what cellular companies right. to you know doing deals that are probably, you know, for the term of the deal 2 million and there probably are a few deals that are over a million for a year by the time you were done. What was it like to see that evolution of the league? Uh you know, of course it was a lot of fun, but uh <clears throat> Again, we just, you know, the thing that was important to us on the sponsorship side, uh, the team was was, was uh, playing well uh, on the whole and coming together, and you know they're obviously making trades, and I think I think the, the fans and clients realized that, and so our feeling was we need to create value for the for the for these sponsors. We never set goals and said, "Okay, we we got to get a million bucks out of these guys, or we got to get two million dollars." We just we just look for opportunities to build relationships and build a sponsorship base on inventory and other assets that made sense to clients. So we sort of evolved. I remember when I first went there, Larry Baum, great guy, my my boss there, said, "Mike, just do simple deals. Just do a deal with some TV spots, some tickets." And maybe a sign. You don't have to do much on that. Just do that. And, and we did that for a while. And I, I finally remembered saying to Larry, you know, we've got all these opportunities. We, you know, there, there's, you know, somebody sponsors the NBA halftime report. Somebody should sponsor that here. You know, we have a we have a chance here to, to leverage these deals into bigger and better uh, things. And so we all, I think kind of came to the, that same conclusion at about the same time. And we started looking for ways to help sponsors become more singularly rec- recognized in the, in the marketplace. So, so as cellular one evolved into an AT&T deal naturally over time. And as their business grew and our business grew, it just became a, a better, more um, formidable partnership. So uh, it, it just kind of evolved that way. It was, it was fun to be part of it. It was fun to, to be be creative, try to find ways to help clients. What's your single memory of that stands out of the NBA Finals in the two years? Oh, that's such a hard question. Um, well, I, I remember a couple of things. One is, you know, we lost, but it was such a, an incredible series. I think both times, I think in ninety seven and ninety eight. The point spread in the in the one in the, at the end of the series was like four points. I mean, it. I know we lost one by twenty, but we beat them by by about twenty, and it, I think it came down to a four point spread. So it was extremely exciting, and being in the arena is like you can't describe it. It's like nothing you'll ever experience, as you know. It's just a. It's something on a on a different level. In the book, I, I, I couldn't think of anything to compare it to, so I compared it to a Rolling Stones concert. That, that where fans are just you know people are just going nuts over the over the stones and how they had how they had uh, their audiences in the palm of their hand when they came on stage and it was kind of that way with the finals. I just remember that uh, um, there's a constant uh, level of noise that you I mean it just never got never got quiet. It was just people yelling the whole the whole time it seemed like so. Uh, the level of excitement is like nothing you'll ever experience. Um, but of course, I just remember that final that final play. That's probably the one thing that sticks with us. That 
that push off by Jordan and that shot, and, and you're just uh, again, I sat there going, that, did that just happen? You know, um, we we really had him for another game, seventh game, which, you know, I think we would have had a pretty good chance of winning. Who knows? But uh, I think that's those those memories. And and if there's one more memory, and, and I'm going to bring it up, it's that the refing in a couple of those games just wasn't very good. And uh, I remember uh, somebody sent me a news clip from a, from a, a, a newspaper in the East, I don't know if it was Boston or New York or where it was from. And uh, the headline was, uh, Jazz, the better team, done in by the refs. That was written by a, a, a sports writer on the East Coast that didn't have any stake in whether Chicago or the Jazz won it, but, but, but may, could see that there was some, uh, uh, some, some mistakes made on the, on the refing side. It's interesting. My memory is the play before the shot. You know, Carl's Carl's got the yeah. ball in his hands. We're up yeah. one. There's twenty some odd seconds left. You'd think you'd be all right. Scotty's in the back with his back and back acting up, may or may not have been able to play game seven and you have the ball you have the ball in your hands of your MVP, you just it's what you'd hope you'd hope. I think by the time the ball got into the hands of their MVP, I, I think yeah, you got a little chance with that guy. Uh I wanna wrap it up with this. I remember that too. Yeah. Uh, I want to wrap it up with this. I thought this was, um, I thought this was just a really interesting quote, um, and maybe told us all we need to know about the Miller organization, which you obviously have an insight into that more than most. And I think our fans are always interested in what it's like to work for them. I try to share as much as I can. It's amazing. Um, train, train your replacement. Don't worry about that. We'll find something even better for you to do. Larry said that. Yeah. He said that several times. And, uh, Again, it was um, you felt like uh, he was going to be he would be loyal to you, and and so he wanted the organization to grow. He didn't want people to create territorial fiefdoms or 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 do things to thwart the growth of the enterprise. He wanted you to raise the people around you to give them opportunities to grow and be better. And and he and he always felt like yeah you'll do you'll find something else for you to do that's that's uh, you know uh, um, a better uh, opportunity. It was uh, very comforting. Mike, great insight into the Millers. A fun time. Some and people as well uh, appreciate it. the book is long shots and layups. Where can people get it, Mike? Well, you can you can uh, I have a web page uh, longshotsandlayups.com. That's an easy place to go and get it. I, it's on Amazon. It's at some bookstores around uh, town. It's at King's English uh, bookstore in Ogden called uh, Booked on 25th. It's at Dolly's in Park City. It's uh, the Printed Garden in Sandy. And um, I'm just actually, uh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be at the airport, at the airport bookstores here at the Sullivan International at Simply Books. Uh, probably uh, today or tomorrow it'll be it'll be there. So some 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 places to get it. It's uh, it's um, it's been a fun project. And, and I, David, I really appreciate you taking the time to to um, talk to me about it. And a shout out to some of our old friends that were mentioned in the book. Obviously, Randy Rigby, but Larry Baum, Grant Harrison, a lot of names behind the scenes that uh, was fun to kind of 
to hear and see them again. Again, Greg Tanner is still with the organization, but yep. it was yep. it was fun to. Ed uh, Roberts, uh, yep. Brian Dever, uh, Kevin G on the tempo. Yep. Uh, we, I, I, I make an analogy that just like the team on the court, we had a we had a tremendous team uh, behind them on the on the sponsor on the sponsorship side, and of course, uh, you have to mention Jerry Sloan, uh, one of my heroes. And uh, uh, one of the chapters, Chapter 6, is, is sort of dedicated. It's called Coach. It's sort of dedicated to Jerry Sloan, who is one of my heroes, just uh, one of the finest people ever. Mike, thanks so much. and hope everybody enjoys it again. It's longshotsandlayups.com or longshotsandlayups at Amazon or if you're at any of the bookstores Mike mentioned. Mike, thanks so much for the time today on Locked on Jazz. Thank you. Thank you. You have a great day. Hope you enjoyed that insight from Mike Snar today and got that look at things. You can now tell your smart device in your car to play the podcast Locked On NBA to get more on your daily dose of the NBA across the Locked On Podcast Network. It is your team every day.